and uh, focus on missions, foreign missions, and also missions here in the United States. And so we've had a series of uh, guest speakers over the last several weeks, and so this is the first Sunday morning that I have spoken in a while, so I would get really comfortable today. I've got a lot to say. Um, I've had a month to think and pray and uh, do a little soul searching over the last few weeks and just want to begin sort of a, a mini series over the next few weeks. We have been studying through the life of David and we studied up to the point where he became king. And uh, we will, after the first of the year, come back and look at some of the passages dealing with David um, when he is uh, serving as king. And we'll get back to that in the coming weeks. But knowing where we are in the calendar, where we land in November, December, we have the holidays coming up. And with that comes certain expectations that we're going to look at certain texts. And I understand that. But as we lead up to the next few weeks, I'm going to take each of the next five Sundays and discuss with you an issue that I believe as a church family we need to think about and I want to do so in such a way that we are thinking corporately and we are thinking what is the purpose of a local church anyway in fact we talked a lot about the church in our missions month on purpose because it's somewhere in the notes, I'm sure I will get to it if, I, if we don't run out of time, but understanding that the church in this current age is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. The church is essential. Do you believe that? Or is it just something that is not of huge importance to you? Pastor, I'm here, aren't I? Yeah, you're here. But are you here? How engaged are you in our ministry? So I believe there are five essential qualities to a church. And in my new members class, we, we talk about this very briefly, but I'm going to take the next five Sundays, and we're going to take them one at a time. Let me give them to you. Number one, churches are about worship. Number two, churches are about instruction. Number three, churches are about fellowship. Number four, churches are about evangelism. And number five, churches are about service. Now, if you're an acronym person, I just spelled for you the word wives. This is not a message on polygamy, okay? Do not believe polygamy is appropriate. However, we are, this helps me remember the five. Maybe it helps you. But this morning, we are going to talk about the very first one. We're going to talk about worship. Can I just, like I should apologize? But honestly, as my children are not old enough to remember this, and maybe you're not old enough to remember this, but that movie captures a real-life event when the United States hockey team played against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union hockey team was undefeated, had won, I can't remember the number, but every Olympics since like, the, since like 1960. They were professional. They had played together for years. And the head coach for the Olympic United States team puts together this band of college kids. They had no chance against the Russians. In fact, in a game leading up to the Olympics, they lost something like 10 to nothing. And I remember as a 10-year-old boy sitting in front of our fuzzy television with the rabbit ear thing, hoping and praying we could get that game that night. Because if you were alive in the 1970s and the early, early 1980s, that game was personal. It wasn't about hockey. It was about the United States and Russia. That's what it was about. And every human being, I think, I believe, in this country was rooting for the hockey team because you were rooting for America. And we won. No one imagined and we still make movies about it. We celebrate it. The Atlanta Braves just won the World Series. First ones for, I don't remember, many years, decades, a couple decades. And what happens when a team wins? We celebrate. We do parades. We throw confetti. May I suggest that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we above all people have a reason to celebrate? Sports is great. I like sports personally. 
but it's just sports. We have something far more important to celebrate. And so when you think about worship, and I'll define it for you in just a couple of moments, and we're going to be looking at a Psalm of David in just a moment, but as you think about worship, and before I define it for you, I want you to think about worship in two particular categories. Number one, worship in Scripture, I would argue, as it is given to us in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, worship must be engaged with an attitude of contemplation. You might say it this way, an attitude of reverence, because we are coming before the Lord who is holy and he deserves our respect and he deserves our reverence. Grace Baptist Church, we got that one. We are reverent. What I don't see in our church, what I don't sense, in a, to be blunt, in our worship at times, is that there is also to be an attitude of joy and celebration. It is to be a time in which we are coming together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not to mourn a death, but to celebrate a resurrection. Several weeks ago, I was reading through the Psalms, and I do that a lot. And I came across Psalm 68, and I'm going to be talking to you about Psalm 68 this morning. It's going to be our text. It's one of many I could choose. But Psalm 68 captured my attention. I wrote it on a sticky note. No thought of doing this series. There was no thought. That, I like to tell you, I planned this months ago. I didn't. I'd be lying to you. But this text, I wrote it on a sticky note, and I stuck it to my computer screen, and I said, the first Sunday in November, that's the text I'm preaching. And this text is long, if you're looking at it, and we're not going to look at every verse. But I would invite you to read through the entire psalm at some point um, today or tomorrow. But Psalm 68, if we just summarize it very quickly, this is a celebration psalm. This is a psalm that was call, calling believers to practice this aspect of worship that was celebratory, remembering that this is a song. It was meant to be sung. There is a lot of, concept, there's a lot of ideas and thoughts about the exact historical context of Psalm 68. It is written by David. Most scholars agree with that. However, the exact moment in history of when this psalm was written is up for debate and discussion. And so I'll just mention a couple of possibilities to you, and I'll offer the one that I believe it to be, but certainly it's not one that would be worthy of a debate. The possible context of this psalm includes David's conquering of Zion in 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 8. We've not gotten that far yet in our study. Or it is possibly in response to David's victories in general. It's just talking about God's deliverance. I invite you, when you go back and read through the psalm, what you're going to see is this past perspective of remembering what God has done and what we do in response to that. Now, this is my opinion, and I underline that word opinion. In my opinion, this psalm was likely written after the events of 2 Samuel 6, in which the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Zion. Now, regardless of the history behind this text, we know that throughout history, God marched before his believers, before his people. And so each and every Sunday, we as Christians celebrate the greatest victory that has ever been won, even greater than the 1980 Olympic hockey team. The greatest victory ever won was when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so worship then, if we are to properly understand it, is first of all, it is not entertainment. We get together on Monday mornings and talk, review at length our worship service every Monday. And the conversation goes something like this. How can we make Sunday more boring? Our, our job, our goal is to just make this the most miserable hour of your life. We don't say that. We do, however, want to make it engaging. We, and we'll talk about worship in more detail in a minute, but we want to make it engaging. We want to make it meaningful. We want to make it contemplative. We want to think. We don't want this to just be a simplistic approach to Scripture. I, I can't bear to think the thought that we would ever negate the preaching of Scripture, the in-depth preaching of Scripture. Heaven forbid. 
But at the same time, we understand that we as believers have, you as a congregant, me as a pastor, the other pastors, we have a responsibility to engage in this process called worship. So let me give you a definition of worship. It's been mine for a while, refined through the years, but it's long, of course, it's me. But here is the definition. Worship worship is the proper response of all moral agents as they sacrificially offer honor, praise, adoration, and worth to their creator God. Why? Because of who God is. And because of all that God has done through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 68 remembers what God has done. Do you regularly remember what God has done for you? Authentic Christian worship is worship that is God-centered, not man-centered, not entertainment-driven. It is God-centered, no less Christ-centered, and is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what worship is. And the most important part of that definition is response. To what? To God, our creator. So from Psalm 68, we're going to, again, we won't read every verse, but in Psalm 68, I want us to look at three aspects of celebratory worship. And I had a aha moment about an hour ago that I'm preaching this message after the time change. So I don't know if that's impacting you, influencing you or not. My dad called me this morning and said he'd been up since 2.30. I was too. It's a Knowles thing. But his was because he forgot to set up his time clock back. Mine is just because I wake up at 3.30 every day, and my body thought it was 3.30. So I've been awake for a while. Maybe you got a little extra sleep. I'll try to keep you engaged. So let's take a look this morning at three aspects of celebratory worship that we find in Psalm 68. Number one, verses one through three, we see joyful adoration. Notice verse one. Notice, first of all, the heading. This is a Psalm of David, as I mentioned. Number one, verse one, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee from before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Now, stop right there for a minute. That's a joyful way to begin a psalm of joy. Well, understand what David is doing here. He is talking about God's power. He is talking about God's deliverance, that throughout history, God had delivered them from their enemies. And what's very interesting to me is verse 1 of Psalm 68 sounds an awful lot like Deuteron- excuse me, Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, which was when the ark was sent out. Listen to this. Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Some argue that this was a phrase that was spoken whenever they went to move the Ark of the Covenant, and this became a marching cry. Those of you that were in the military, I never was, but in the military, there is chance, there's this cry, and there is this sense in which these were marching words, and the mar- person on the march in verses 1 and 2 is God himself on behalf of his people. That before him, the enemies are like smoke that just blow away with the wind, or they're like wax that melt away from the heat. Well, what does that have to do with worship? Look at verse 3. Notice the contrast. But the righteous shall be miserable. Is that what it says? It says the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Now, I I read from the ESV this morning, and I want to read, if I may, from um, words in this verse and listen to it. You may have the Holman with you, but I'm reading this, this translation comes from the Holman. It says, but the righteous are glad. They rejoice before God and celebrate with joy. I love that. It's a celebration. Celebratory worship produces a response. If, in fact, as believers, we are thankful for the redemption that we have in Christ, and we are thankful for the truth that we possess, and we are thankful for our eternal hope, there should be 
a response. Now, we might be tempted to say that, as Al Mohler said in a sermon that I listened to recently, that quiet satisfaction does not publicly communicate our agreement. And so as I read through Scripture, I see two ways that we can communicate our thankfulness and agreement. The first way that I find in Scripture is we can say verbally, Amen. Some of you have. Deuteronomy 8, 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Psalm 106, verse 48, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everything to, or excuse me, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. I've been in services, you probably have too, that you probably have heard pastors say, can I get an amen? If I have to ask, I won't. Here at Grace, we don't endorse or promote emotional manipulation. Never done that, never will. However, we do endorse and promote the biblical idea that I am thankful for what you said, and I agree. Amen. Now, here's an observation that is later in the notes, but I might not get that far. I know how to get amens from you. I do. If I say the right political jargon, amen, oh, amen. That's right, Washington's a mess, amen. Or I could play a mental game with you and make you feel like you have to offer an amen. I don't see that as a worshipful response. I see that as a response to manipulation. I'll do neither, and no, we're not going to be obsessed with, with politics from this pulpit. It's not going to happen. Yes, we are Americans. Yes, you should vote. Yes, be politically active. But this is not a stump speech every Sunday. It never will be, as long as I'm pastor. It's not going to happen. So we understand that for some, saying amen is a way to say, I am thankful and I agree. I was, as you know, um, I was pastoring in, in Vermont, and we had this, we had a, a lady who, I think I've probably told this story before, but it just struck me. And it's New England, understand, but they had a, we had a lady, she was there for, I think, about six months, and she was coming to our church, and I would preach, and she sat to my left, she sat about where, right, right about where the rolls are sitting, we're about that far away. And she sat there with her Bible in her lap and her arms crossed, but not in a, like, adversary way. She just kind of sat there. She would listen. And when I said something, she said, mm, Lord, Jesus, thank you. Mm-hmm. Lord. So this went on several times. Mm, Lord, thank you. Oh, thank you, Lord. The New England crowd went like this. <laughs> and so... She comes, sweet lady. It was one of those church members that she was never a member. She was busy. You wanted her to stay. And she came up to me. She said, Pastor, if I am bothering you, I will stop. I'm like, please, it's nice to know somebody's alive. Please don't stop. People keep looking at you. Let them look. Let them look. You're not being disruptive. You're not calling attention to yourself. You're not doing it for self-promotion. You're doing it to say, I agree. And Lord, thank you. Thank you. That's worship. Now, most of you agree with that, but let me make you really uncomfortable. There's a second way to show I am thankful and I agree, and that is through using your hands. Psalm, one, Psalm 47, verses 1 and 2. Okay, hold on to your pew. <laughs> Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with, Lord, with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. We do not, have not, will not endorse promoting and applauding a performer. Never. I've, I have seen it. I've been in churches that have done it. Somebody comes to sing a song and they spend the first five minutes before they sing telling you how difficult the song is. This is a hard song. Just pray with me while I sing it. What are you after? People to think good of you? We're not after prima donnas that stand up to impress you with their voice or to stand up and draw attention to themselves. 
We're not about applauding a performance, but you know what? In today's culture, you know how a lot of people say, thank you, and I agree? They clap. We've had people sit on this pew in this church, say, they were here for various reasons, say, you know what, I, gotta, I don't know what's wrong with you, you guys, but like, I got to clap. You're going to escort me out if I do? Literally, I, like, I'm not making that up. Like, no, please, please clap. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't make it obnoxious. You get the picture. But you know what? If you're saying, I agree, and Lord, thank you, then do it. You have officially my permission. Now, understand that we, as again, let me be redundant, we do not endorse promoting, applauding a performer. However, we do endorse the principle of saying, I'm thankful and I agree. I've heard pastors say, I, well, meaning, by the way, well, we only, we only clap for children. I mean, okay, but so we only say I'm thankful and I agree when a, somebody under four feet tall sings? Aren't we teaching them to, by that, that we are applauding them? I don't know. But here's another way, and this will maybe make you squirm a little bit too, but let me just read what Psalm 134 says, verse 2. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Folks, lifting up of hands is something that you see throughout Scripture. We do not endorse or promote, based on biblical principles, drawing attention to yourself. It's not the purpose. But we do endorse, promote, saying, I'm thankful and I agree. And if raising your hand says, I am thankful and I am agreeing with what you're saying, then do that. You have my permission officially. Not to draw attention to you. Not to make a spectacle of you. But to say, Lord, thank you. God, I agree with what is being said and what is being stated. So we see in these opening verses that there is this principle of worship, that there is to be joyful adoration in worship. But secondly, from this psalm, there is also, we are called to practice vibrant singing. Look at verse 4. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts, his name is the Lord, exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Actually, read verse 6 as well. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious, they dwell in a parched land. Jump down to verse um, number 32. It says this, it says, O, o kingdom of earth, Sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. We have, again, examples throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament that the Psalms call us to this principle of vibrant singing. Why do we sing praises to God? Well, verses 4 through 6 give us three reasons why number one it says he delivers his people through the desert sing to lord to the lord why lift up a song to him why because he is the one who rides through the deserts his name is the lord exalt him we see in verse five that he is the father to the fatherless he is the one that comforts the downtrodden he cares for them as one of the other psalms says when my father and mother forsake me the lord will take me up we also see this principle that not only is he the protector of the fatherless, but he also protects the wilderness. Uh, verse 8, those that are in need of a home, he settles them, he comforts them. Now what is curious about this psalm is we get the principle of singing, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. But look at verse 18. This is a very interesting verse, and we're not going to take a lot of time to explain it. However, I want to highlight this because it is quoted by the Apostle Paul in the, book, in the book of Ephesians in a very interesting context. Notice verse 18. It says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving many gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. 
Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, he says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, captives and he gave gifts to men. Again, I am not going to bog down in a lengthy conversation about these few verses um, because we will deal with some of these principles in later messages. But just understand, actually, the imagery of verses 15 and 17 leading up to verse 18, it talks about this imagery that the mountain of Bashan or Mount Hermon was jealous or envious of a smaller mountain, the mountain being Zion. And the picture is that a military conquest, when they would conquer a people, they would take spoils of war. And these spoils of war that were taken, Paul applies it in verse 8 of Ephesians 4 when he's talking about Jesus' conquering of the grave, that he then says that Jesus has taken what he has won and he has given it to his children, to his believers. Specifically, he has given them gifts for service. Interesting. He takes verse 18, Psalm 68, a psalm about joy, a psalm about singing, a psalm about praising God, and the apostle Paul applies it to believers receiving gifts from the Holy Spirit of God. Interesting. In the beginning, God created the earth. In the beginning, God created man. Meaning in this world is founded in the reality of our sovereign, omnipotent creator. That is why Psalm 19 says, which is also a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Did you know that human beings are the only creatures that God has created that have the capacity to know their creator? Did you know that we are the only ones that have the capacity to know and understand ourselves as best we can regarding our sinful hearts? Bacteria is life. Algae is life. Mold is life. Grass is life. Flowers and trees are life. But they do not ponder their existence. In fact, if you went home, we have two dogs. If you went home, I guarantee you today when I go home, I will not find my two dogs sitting together in the living room contemplating their existence. And they won't be wondering what happens to them when they die. They won't be wondering what, what is their meaning in life. You know what they're going to be thinking about? Pet me, feed me, and let me go outside. That's it. That is the end of their existence. They are not pondering the greater questions of life. They don't wonder why they're here. But you do. And you know why you're here? You know why you were created? You know why God loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for your sin? He did that so that you can know your creator. And you can worship him. Do you agree? Do you say thank you? Amen. I'm not manipulating you. I'm just asking. We understand that in the human idea, in the human existence, we were created to worship. The question isn't whether or not you are going to worship. The question is who or what are you going to worship? And part of our worship, especially for us here at Grace, our church is going to incorporate congregational singing. Why? Because it's essential. We don't sing to fill our services with time. I can do that myself, I promise. I can talk for a long time. We sing in our services because the redeemed are called, to called and created to sing. The redeemed have something to sing about. We raise our voices in praise and adoration to our creator as an act of worship. My football coach used to say this. He used to say, I don't care if you hit the wrong guy. Just hit him hard. I think Pastor West would agree. I don't care if you hit the right, right note. Just hit it hard. Sing. Well, the people around me might hear them. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be wonderful? The redeemed sing. Why? We have something, more importantly, someone to sing about. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. 
You can sing that. Do you fill your mind and your heart with worship songs throughout the course of the week that remind you of the truths of Scripture? You see, the redeemed sing. By the way, the only instrument that we are, we are commanded to use definitely in Scripture is your voice. That's why God gave you one. All other instrumentation is periphery, in my opinion. It is about our voices. Now, let me give you a third principle, and then we'll apply this. The third principle is thankful remembrance. Look down at verse 19. It says, bless the Lord. I love this, by the way. Bless the Lord who daily bears me up. Bears us up. Isn't that great? Every day, the Lord has the power to bear you up. God is our salvation. Notice that next little word, selah. We don't read it publicly it was a musical term. It seems it means to pause. It was like a rest, the hardest note to play in music, rest. Don't play anything. Don't say anything. Think about what you just read. That's why that word's there. Bless the Lord. Why? He daily bears us up. He is the God of our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs deliverance from death. Eternal death. Been delivered through the power, for us as New Testament believers, the power of Christ. For sake of time, go to verse 34. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be to God. And so here we see these reasons why we worship, we Understand, he says that God bears the burdens of his people. Verse 19, God saves his people from destruction. God displays his power and his holiness. He's done it in the past. He's doing it in the present, and he will do it in the future. So worship then is our time together of coming as a body to remember this promise and to understand what we have in Christ. Now think with me for the last couple of minutes as where we stand in the church in the United States today. And I'm not talking specifically necessarily just about grace. I'm talking about the church in general. In the typical American church, more than one half, more than one half of the members only attend one out of every four weeks or less. Despite what humanists think, despite what humans, humanists believe and teach, healthy churches are a positive force in our culture and in our communities. And when functioning correctly, a church can serve and love others. They can humbly show the light to this lost world. And so these are what's called quarter members, by the way. That is the new term. They come one-fourth of the time. They are there only looking at Sunday mornings, by the way. Only looking at Sunday morning, the average church member only comes one time per month. A faithful church member has been defined as somebody who comes twice a month. Okay, that is defined today by writers as faithful. So that leads to the question, why do people no longer have the same commitment to the local body of believers. I hear what you're saying. I can think along with you. Well, I'm here, Pastor. What are we talking to us about this for? We're the ones that are here. I get that. I understand that. But I am asking you, as you listen to this, number one, you understand maybe the thought process of some of those that are around you. But number two, I mean, I'll get to this in a minute, that you do something about it. Not just me, not just Wes, not just Brian, not just Dan. You do something about it, okay? We all do something about it. What are we going to do? How are we going to address these Issues. How are we going to approach it? Prayer being a primary one, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Let me give you some of these reasons. The first one I've already alluded to is that I'm, I'm concerned that many believers today do not see the local church as God's unique plan to accomplish his mission on the earth during this age. As I said before, there is no plan B. From Acts chapter 2, which is the beginning of the church... All the way through Revelation chapter 3, it is all about the church. 
And I would just say this. If it is so important to God that he sent his son to die, to shed his blood, to initiate this body that he's caused the church, if it mattered to God so much that he sent his son to die for it, he wrote letters to these local congregations of how churches should function, of what they should be doing and what they should believe. And I believe that we should take note of that, that it is about the church. You don't see, oh, by the way, Peter, if the church thing doesn't work out, I got another, I got another plan, but I'll, I'll tell you about that later if it doesn't work. It's not there. It's been the church. Now listen to these words. This comes from the Apostle Paul found in 1 Timothy 3. Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I was thinking today, I wonder if, I, I, this is like my sanctified imagination, right? I want the Apostle Paul was in 21st century America today, and he read on the internet, once he got over what in the world is the internet, once he got around that and he read, most believers, more than half church members, only come to church, participate in body life one time per month. I wonder what Paul would say to that. I don't think it would be very pretty. But today, the church... Is it really that important, Pastor? I mean, do I really have to go anyway? Can't I just stay home? Hang on to that. We'll answer that in the subsequent weeks. Let me give you reason two. I love this. Reason two, believers sometimes, I've heard this, you've heard this, believers sometimes embrace the false idea that consistent church attendance is legalistic. Now, this thinking is in the response to some past teachings that were well-intentioned. And maybe our American models that is consistently been Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that that became this sort of inscripturated model of what church has to be and how church is defined. I don't have time to go into all of this, but let me just deal with two of those services. For instance, the Sunday um, the, the, the Sunday school movement, where did that start? I mean, did the Apostle Paul start that? Is that part of Scripture? Actually, it began around, it began in the 19th century. And so Sunday school ministry was actually, let me just read part of this, uh, the Sunday school movement began in Britain in the 1780s. It was developed as a response to the Industrial Revolution that resulted in many children spending all week long working in factories. So Christian businessmen wanted these children to have a form of literacy. And so because they were working all the time, they then, by the way, it resulted some acts in 1802 led it to children only working, could only work up to 12 hours a day. 1802, they passed a law, the poor little kids in Britain, they could only work 12-hour shifts. That's it. This resulted in a limited number of hours that a child could work to 12, but it was later lowered again in 18, not until 1844. Moreover, Saturday at that time was considered to be a work day. Sunday was the only time available for these children to be brought to the church for the purpose of teaching them to read. And yet today, if you say something like, well, I don't know if our church is going to start a Sunday school ministry, you must not love Jesus. We all know doctrinally sound churches have Sunday school. One of the first signs that a church is going liberal is they don't have a 9 a.m. Sunday school. So uh, until, the 18th, so the 19th century, all those churches prior to that were disobeying God? That's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. Sunday night one is trickier. It's very uncertain, actually, and depends on who you read. I read a couple articles about this, and I don't have a lot of time for this one. Probably a bigger question about this one, maybe, in your mind. Uh, Sunday night services, according to one writer, grew during the agricultural phase of history when farmers had to work the land six days a week. But on Sunday, they could come for a morning service, have dinner on the grounds, have a second service, and go home. During World War II, another writer said that Sunday evening services began because of the seven-day work week. 
that was necessary for the production of materials for the war. That a Sunday evening service allowed certain people working in factories to attend a service. Some denominations and church traditions focus on the Sunday night service as a way to equip believers, and Sunday morning was for outreach to the lost. Regardless of exactly why the Sunday night service developed, it was because of a cultural situation. And so today, regardless of what the reaction is of culture then, we are seeing a very similar reaction to the Sunday evening service in the opposite direction today as a cultural shift in work patterns. By the way, and the fact that, and I, get, I invite this, by the way, this isn't, this isn't to tell you to stop doing this. During the course of a week, I get sent messages that you guys are listening to all week long. Oh, Jay, I listened to this one. I listened to this one. I listen to this guy. I listen to this Bible study. This pastor is better than you. Listen to this one. And they come into my inbox. And you know what? I can't listen to them all. I'm sorry. I listen to these portion of them. But you know what that tells me? You're listening to preaching all the time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They didn't have that in World War II. They didn't have that in 17th century England. Didn't exist. But here's my point. Are we legalistic because we are committed to other things? Are you legalistic because you're committed to your spouse? Ah, oh, you're just such a legalist. I mean, this whole commitment thing, you staying with your whole spouse all the time. You're such a legalist. Nobody would say that. Are you a legalist because you're committed to raising your children? Are you a legalist because you're committed to your employer? Are you... Legalistic because you're committed to your book club? Are you legalistic because you're too committed to your sports team? Why is it that legalism is only applied to the church? Do your children and grandchildren see you being more committed to your favorite club or charity to the church? If the Apostle Paul is right, that in fact the church is the place where truth is found, then it seems to me that our children should see us most committed to the body of Christ. And being a part of the body. And yet very often today, church is one of the very first things that are removed from our calendars. Reason three, believers often allow the culture to dictate what is most important. Years ago, I was, I was working in the healthcare industry, and I was working at a, it's a long story, but I was teaching classes at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. And I had a weird position, worked for the hospital, but I taught for the college, and the college had a, a Wednesday night um, dinner that I had to attend. And I told them I wasn't going to be there. So the vice principal, vice principal, Lord, the vice president of our department calls me in. Her name is Michelle, my wife's name. Her name happened to be Michelle. And Michelle sits me down and she says, I need to know why you can't be at this event on Wednesday night. I said, I'm working with teens at our church and I need to be there. And she said, well, but... This is once a year, and we are recruiting students for your program. We need you to be there. Surely your church for one Wednesday night out of the calendar year can find somebody else. I went to church that night, and I got a handwritten write-up from the college that I did not fulfill one of my obligations. In hindsight, full disclosure, I probably should have gone to the college event. But you know why I didn't? Because I was blown away at the opportunity to serve my Savior in a church. I never imagined that somebody as messed up as me as a kid would ever be asked to teach a group of teenagers. That, never, that, was, that was an amazing honor to me. And yet our culture says that church really doesn't matter. There's too many other things to be involved in. How willing are we to say no to things that are of interest to us? Because the church just doesn't matter. 
Reason four, believers see the church as a place to be served rather than a place to serve. If for some reason you don't believe that that's true, ask yourself this question. How much time do church members spend arguing about preferences? Each minute that we spend arguing over peripheral matters is one less minute that we have to serve our Savior. Consider this. Three hours per week. Let's say you're here. Three hours per week. That equals approximately 1.8% of your time. If we're only here Sunday mornings, that represents approximately 1% of your time. In your 98.2% of your other time, you have the absolute freedom to listen to the exact music you prefer. You can listen to a better speaker. They are abounding. I can find them for you if you need a list. You can find, you can read a devotional from the version of the Bible that you like better. You can have the carpet the color you want. You can have the flavor of creamer that you like. 98% of the time. But my dear friend, corporate worship is not about you. It's not about coming together to have your itches scratched, your soapbox ranted and raved about, and your preferences met. We do know that Pastor West doesn't get all of his preferences. I don't get all of mine. The body of Christ is coming together as a community to serve our Lord and Savior, and to worship Him. I read a study yesterday that says, and this is a tricky one, and I'll clarify it, I think, for you, but that the average American spends 50 hours per week on some type of screen. Now, I, I, it's a little tricky because I would probably be there too just because of my work schedule. But are we so consumed without things outside of here that screens become the replacement for the body of Christ that we find sermons and we find singing and we find all those things other places so we can just watch them with a screen? Well, let me just challenge that for a moment, if I may, and I'm done. One thing that online church can never give you, and by the way, we're thankful for our online ministry. My dad's home watching today. We have other people that watch all over the place, and we appreciate that. But that, that's a tool for those who cannot be here. It doesn't replace being here. And you know what? As your pastor, I would say this, as I've got the pulse, I think, I pray on our ministry right now, our people are missing connection to the body. Because we've been torn apart for years now, literally. Florence, COVID-19, I've been telling the pastors, like, we can't even say that as an excuse anymore. It can't be, well, you know, COVID, well, you know, the hurricane, well, you know. You know what? There are people in this building, and they are not here in this building right now because they crave to be connected to the body of Christ. And when you're not here and people aren't reaching out to them, guess what? That can't happen. So we have to understand this is something that we all need to address. We all need to become a part of the body in such a way that we are reaching out to be people to connect. You know, when Michelle and I first got married, we moved to Vermont, and we didn't know anybody, literally nobody. And we got connected to a church. It wasn't the one we ended up in, but we got connected to this little church in Shelburne, Vermont, because I worked with a lady by the, by the name of Angie, who was a nurse in the hospital where I worked. And she invited me to church and we got connected with her and her husband. And they took us out on Lake Champlain. We went out, uh, what's it called? Uh, skiing whatever else we did, water skiing, there's the word, went out water skiing with them, we hung out with them all the time, and our connection wasn't to the pastor, our connection was to them. And folks, if we are going to see Grace Baptist Church continue to grow and mature, it means that every single one of us are making meaningful connections to the body of Christ. And when you're not here, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. I'm not sorry, because it's true. What excuses are keeping you from our weekly gatherings? What excuses are keeping you from serving the body? What excuses are keeping you from reaching out? 
to someone that you know is craving connection to this body. Folks, I love this church. And I believe you do too. But we can be better. Not for our glory, but so that we get gospel opportunities to tell others about Christ. So corporate worship, does it matter? Absolutely. And as we worship together, it includes joyful adoration. It includes vibrant singing. It includes thankful remembrance. That means corporate worship needs something important. It needs you. And it needs me to die to ourselves, to come with a heart of service, to worship the Lord for his glory, and to influence and impact the people that God sovereignly brings into your life and mine. I pray that's who we are, and I pray that is who we continue to be, and I pray that in the coming years, should the Lord tarry, that we become a place that when people for sovereign reasons leave our church, they are saddened to go because this is their family. That's my heart for our ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time to share this text. And Lord, I pray that the hearers would understand my heart on this. It's not meant to be negative. It's just to encourage us of what we should be doing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use my feeble attempt this morning to speak to hearts and to lives, and that we would come each and every time to corporate worship with the purpose of showing our agreement with what's true and also saying thank you, Lord, for what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.